1: Business as Boring is made by the spin off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency.
2: Here's your host, Simon Pound. Hello, and welcome along to our monthly-ish business chat, uh, joined today in the studio by Duncan Grieve, the uh, managing editor of the spinoff, and also by Maria Slade, senior copywriter at Callahan Innovation, to chew over the big issues in business on the pod and in the month. G'day
1: peoples. Kia ora. Kia
2: ora. Morena, nice to see you guys. Um, you people trying not to say guys. <laughs> Still manage it. We're all working on it. We're, We're all, all working, working on it. it. Life's a life's a progress. Hey, uh, the biggest kind of international story um that I've been loving has been in, in the world of business, has been the super public kind of meltdown and trials of Elon Musk.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been a thing to witness. I, you know, I I've been if not fan is the right word, but I guess an admirer of certain elements of what Elon Musk has set out to do for a long period of time. read Ashley Vance's uh, biography of him, and you know I do think there's something huge in in the the difference between what he aspires to do and what and what he, like large chunks of Silicon Valley aspires to do, like the build a better app versus build a colony on Mars. You know, the level of aspiration there is, you know, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. And that's why, I suppose, I, every time I see him tweeting or, or kind of this increasingly erratic behavior, it's sort a of tinge with sadness for me that someone who clearly has these qualities that are they're that extraordinary is currently sort of so uh just misfiring so badly or, or just just making very very poor use of his his very precious time it,
2: so remarkable, isn't it? There's that great old expression, never meet your heroes. And I think it could be extended to never follow your heroes on Twitter because he's gone through this thing where the whole world was like in awe of him. It was like, how can he be a master of rocket science and tunneling and this and that and be able to foot it with specialists across a hundred subjects? And people were literally in awe of him mm, about a mm. year ago. And over the last year, he's, he's become a byword for kind of arrogance, out of touch, hubris. Um, the whole bit.
3: Yeah, I think it's a case of where vision meets business reality. He's now running this multi-gazillion dollar business. And, you know, there was New Zealand $8 billion wiped off the share price when the news came out that he's been losing sleep over what's been happening at Tesla. And that's ridiculous. You know, that's a real cult of a personality. You can't run a business like that. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether he needs a 2IC, a second-in-command, and, you know, probably he does.
2: Well, does he need six of them because Uh, he's got six different discrete interests?
3: Yeah, it's the most shorted stock on Wall Street. I I would not be betting my retirement income on uh, Tesla at the moment. And, uh, you know, now he's come out with a tweet and said, oh, yes, I'm going to look at taking the company private. Well, you know, the U.S. regulators are now down on him um, for breaching, potentially breaching disclosure requirements. And,
1: you know. And-, <laughs> <laughs> well, and, a lot of the, and his desire to take it private seems less motivated. I mean, obviously, there are advantages to it from his perspective in terms of, you know, earnings calls and quarterly reporting. But the largest part of it seems to be because he wants to stick it to all the shorts, which is, yeah. you know, not necessarily the best motive for for a business decision of that magnitude. And
2: he chose the price at four twenty because he thought it was funny and would be good karma. But to be fair, it is funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. And I mean, the, the, like you say about the scale of, of his ambition, because he's been kind of, you know, laughed out of the park for years. Since, since kind of going, I'm going to start SpaceX. And people were like, well you know, that's not possible. And then Tesla coming out, you know, very famously with that blueprint that he'd sell some um, cars to rich people, and then that would turn into cars for very well-off people, and then it would turn into the new Model T. And he's he's two-thirds of the way through that journey, but he just may have bitten off so many extra things along the way that the journey's now looking more precarious than it's ever looked.
3: Well, at last count, the Model 3 will cost $53,000 when it hits the New Zealand market, and that's not a cheap car. And, you know, there, there are fans out there that are already lining up and paying deposits for this, um, you know, model that has not yet been developed because obviously they've got to switch the steering wheel around (laughs) in the new zealand market yeah
2: and it's years delayed in production as well
3: yeah and he had his whole battle with the whole robotics thing where he went sort of you know religiously down the automation route and that didn't work out and now he's sort of pulling back and realizing that humans have some value and you know these are all interesting issues that manufacturers around the world are struggling with so he's kind of doing it on this massive um, you know, very public scale uh, kind of thing. You know, they've talked about the machine that builds the machine and the robotic symphony and stuff like that, which is, is in itself is pretty interesting. But, you know, they're saying if they can keep making 5,000 Model 3s a month, they'll break even by the end of the year. So he may still do it.
2: Oh, And I, I, I appreciate that he's the most shorted stock, but I still wouldn't bet against him. Like, uh, the, the things like even just in terms of marketing, he is such a genius, like the boring company, which, you know, for most people, any one of these things would be enough to kind of um, uh, keep them occupied and happy. But his idea of building the, the Hyperloop and taking transport um, underground and the way that he's funded that through um the, the baseball caps and the flamethrowers and all of the like mm. surfboards and stuff like he, he's he's truly kind of like an, an industrial marketing kind of man of the people titan
1: uh, well and and you know you look at the bet that he made uh with the it was in south australia to build a 60 million dollar battery for them and if he didn't complete it within his deadline they, they got the battery free there's you know there's a you know it is hubristic, but the frequency with which he pulls it off yes he's face challenges but you know i still uh, and and obviously he's not an uncomplicated or unproblematic figure but you know in terms of what his net impact on the world is i i can't help but sort of still be rooting for him in a way and and probably hoping that he is able to be kind of pulled back from some of the extremes of his public statements have someone with a little bit more stability in a COO type role that he actually respects which is half the battle with a lot of these guys who can maybe separate him from the more dangerous extremes because you know there are like him working himself to the bone and I know that he got into a sort of a scrap with Ariana Huffington who's deeply obsessed with sleep and um and obviously he's not getting a lot and I mean, I think that's a just a general sort of founder's curse, and it's something that you have the right to impose on yourself and maybe on your very well-compensated senior employees, but where he, he seems to be trying to bake it into his system and have his work ethic be imposed on tens of thousands of people who are working in manufacturing, which A, is a lot more dangerous in and of itself, and, and B... You're certainly not compensating these people to a level or or giving them options to the point where they are as incentivized to, to redline the way that you do. And I don't think it's even necessarily desirable for humanity, for capitalism to be practiced in that way. So, yeah, he's – and with all that, I can't buy into the sort of troll-like hating of him yep. that has become the general public position. I think – He's just another complicated character and you have to wrestle with his complexities.
3: On that sort of work ethic thing, I remember reading about the beginnings of Amazon and the hours that Jeff Bezos had people working and I just remember thinking, why did people do it? <laughs> I wouldn't have. I, I would not work sort of 20 hours out of 24 for a man that was just starting up a business. But And, yeah. and
1: you know that the, the spoils of that tend to go to them, you know, that this... I mean, I get that there is there's something exhilarating about about working that way, but uh, I think once you go past a sort of a normal heavy workload and into something else, unless you're at like a law firm where there's this kind of you know associate partner, you know that there's a the, there is a a reason at the end of it. Some of it seems like a reality distortion field yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's
2: that concept of people you know they they work for the purpose. and when your purpose purposes uh, move human life onto, uh, and to being a multi-planetary uh, species that really connects with some people or move us past the petrol age, uh, you, you know, like that kind of stuff, which, you know, um, if, if you were to write it all down that's this one person was actually kind of the driving force for all of these things, it'd be hard to believe. Yeah. Anyhow, the, the future, the future of work peace. there, you know, that idea of working all of those hours, hours of the day, something that, that Musk did try with, um, with computers, but didn't quite pull it off in the of production facility. There's an Infometrics report on what the future of work is here. Sweet secret, yeah,
1: killed it.
3: Yes, and uh, Infometrics uh, just come out recently and said a, a third of jobs would be automated um, within an under twenty years in New Zealand. Uh, and and the thing that you find about these kinds of reports is they vary wildly. Like McKinsey said, it's more like 41%. So the poor little business owner is struggling with, you know, what's my future workplace going to look like? What kinds of skills, what kinds of employees am I going to need? And uh, there was a mission that went up to Chicago just recently um, to go to an IoT conference, Internet of Things and manufacturing and looking at factories up there and so forth. And this is one of the things they were quite interested in looking at, uh, whether the Americans have cracked it. And the answer is they haven't really but they're a bit further down the track than we are in some respects and you know I talked to one business owner Clyde McCready of a company called Towbars Express he's making tow bars for cars and he said you know I'm going to need employees that don't think um, in a linear fashion that aren't just specialists in one thing that can work across um, business boundaries and business disciplines because I'm going to get um, a whole lot of data from the IoT on my shop floor and I need to be able to get my guys on the shop floor to think about how we might implement that information and use it to our advantage. Now, that's probably not your average factory worker just at the moment. So, we, we, you know, we're going to need to produce people that can think like that. And personally, I get really worried when I read statistics like um, 11% of 15 to 24-year-olds in this country are NEETs, as they say, not in employment, education or training. That's more than one in ten and it's higher for Marian Pacifica. Uh, to me I find I think Duncan disagrees with me, but I find that really scary that we are not producing the people we need for the future workplace.
1: Well I mean I guess some of the reason that I'm not as perturbed by the neat figure is I um the the idea that education and training as we currently practice them in New Zealand are producing those multidisciplinary workers to me is Look, I, I don't know if I necessarily buy it. I, I look at university uh, and sort of technical college kind of curricula at the moment and they don't seem to have moved anywhere near at the same pace as uh, the demands of the workforce and the, the sort of imminent demands of the workforce have. And I think, you know, I was listening to Frances Valentine on, on uh, Business Boring a few weeks back and I think she certainly... Uh, you know, spoke to that uh, that, um, that you know the the challenges of educating like that, and the way that primary school might have moved pretty well in that direction, mm-hmm. but our high schools haven't. And part of me, and and that's why I love the um you know the uh, no you know the no degree no problem um, initiative that now I think over half of our employ uh, employers by volume have signed up to, because it does say that the best, I mean. That some of the best learning you can do is 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 on a job. It's not necessarily the sort of fine detail of education. And in any case, that going to placing the huge bet that a degree is. You know, it's it's the biggest thing you buy for probably the first decade. If if you even do get to buy a house, and who knows on that front, <laughs> it's tens of thousands of dollars in debt that you have to carry around with you. And if you and everyone's very interested in you coming in and and picking one of their Uh, you know their degrees or diplomas but the likelihood of that being well matched to the this kind of radically evolving workforce I couldn't say with any confidence that's the case so I think the employment thing matters and yes you'd want them in the right kind of training but I also worry that there are a lot of people training hard for things that aren't necessarily even going to be there.
3: I think that's true I think yeah it's certainly not about always going to university, I think a lot of people go to university unnecessarily these days, and with student debt, I mean, it's just a bad idea, really. Uh, we did a thing at Callaghan Innovation called the the Innovation Challenge, where they went out to a whole lot of um, thought leaders and asked them what they thought New Zealand should look like in 20 years' time, what should the New Zealand of 2040 be. And one of the things that they had a lot to say about education, as people do, and one of the things that came out was um, that we should adopt a system of lifelong learning, a sort of a system of micro-credentials micro-creden- instead of a, a linear degree or diploma kind of system where people can pop in and out of ed- of education and work and, um, you know, grab some skills that they might need and, then, and thus build up some sort of a qualification, which to me does sound like a, a very sensible idea, and I, I don't know how well our education system caters to that idea yet. Yeah,
2: sounds like a, a great idea especially seeing so much of the value of uh, a person going and doing some kind of degree or qualification is to show a future employer that they can suck eggs and that they'll they'll follow through on something and they'll do what they're told and they can you know jump through the hoops that are put in front of them and you can probably do that by working while also picking up a couple of little um, you know problem solving things so people know that you can you know, do a task that you're given or you've got some kind of applicable skill. The idea of actually going to university for four years uh, and doing, you know, maybe 12 hours of contact time uh, with three months of holidays in the year, it doesn't seem wildly efficient uh, a way to spend some of your most energetic years of your life.
1: And there's the, there's this, you know, you often hear from tertiary institutions, particularly out of the outside, that, it, that the value is so much greater than that. And I don't dispute that, you know, and that there are these professional networks that you that you create and that you're you're learning how to use your mind which in and of itself none of that's a problem except for the fact that you're paying a huge amount of money for it and for the most part they're not paying it so that they can expand their mind which they can also do in anyway, over a number of different ways they're paying it with the expectation that it will elevate their future earnings and get them into a job which is likely to to have some consistency to it and the world that's hurtling towards us that's kind of already here just doesn't have those attributes as far as I can tell. I think
2: a lot of it is they're just buying the chance to be um, given better chances in their future, where the problem for me with the NEETs, the, the you know, 10% odd of um, 18 to 24-year-olds not in any kind of uh, education, if they come from um, privileged backgrounds they can go and surf for four years and then come back at 22 and through their network land in a job where all of their life experiences, you know, still get them in a good spot. But if you come from a non-privileged background and you spend four years um, surfing, you come back and then you end up in low-skilled work for the rest of your life, which um, uh, is is not ideal.
3: Or no work. That's the thing because the number of low-skilled jobs are rapidly disappearing.
2: And, you know... There's another segue into the the Maori youth economy. We had a great chat with um, Aroha Armstrong from Callaghan about the work uh, doing there, and you know it just makes such great sense that if you want to supercharge uh, the economy of New Zealand, putting that work into creating more pathways uh, for Maori and Pacifica Islander youth that are underrepresented in the good stats of employment uh, seems to be such a, a sensible place to put the effort.
3: That's right. Auckland Council's actually come out and specifically said that just the other day in, in their latest economic report, because the problem with Auckland's economy is that once you strip out the construction and the tourism and the immigration, it don't look too flash. Mm. And one of the things they're saying is that our Māori economy is very untapped, particularly from the tourism perspective, because survey after survey shows that people come to New Zealand to look at the scenery, but also to experience the Māori culture. And when you think about it, we don't actually have like one Māori festival, in this country, we just don't have it. Marsoriiki about the nearest, and that's kind of fragmented. Although you know, people are celebrating it more and more, and you know they have um, waka racing at anniversary weekend in Auckland. And I think Auckland Council has long wanted to try and pull together some sort of big event um, as as part of a plan to um, utilise the Māori culture and economy better. Uh, and you know, it just makes perfect sense. The Māori economy is growing faster than the rest of the New Zealand economy. Um, it's a very young uh, population, of course. Uh, half of Māori in Auckland are under 25, apparently. So that's probably one of the reasons they're not showing up in the figures so much yet, because they're still quite young. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a way of how do you harness that is the thing. And I remember interviewing Ella Henry from AUT once a while back, and <laughs> she talked about Nāti Ati Fāti. Uh, which is you know it, it to us it sounds like plastic tickies and exploiting the culture but it, it's kind of not you no, know they've no. got heaps to offer yeah
2: and, and the um one of the first one of the big contributors to the first wave of the Māori renaissance was the fact that there were jobs in education and government that uh you, you know made um having te reo a really valuable thing and so now it's a matter of making sure there are also jobs in the wider economy where that Um, language is such a valuable thing. And I can't understand how Auckland, the largest Pacific island city in the world and uh, the largest Māori city in the world, doesn't have some kind of amazing cultural and tourism experiences. You have to drive to Rotorua in order to actually have some kind of um, very prominent uh, experience. And it's bananas. And those ideas for the wonderful statue um, in the, the area known as Bastion Point um, you know, they may not be perfect, but the ambition and the scale and the concept uh, make so much sense to me.
3: I don't know about you two sort of pale Pākehā guys, but I'm starting to feel a bit left out on the te reo front. You know, I wished I'd learnt it when I was younger. I just feel like it's, it's you can't get into a te reo les- lesson to save your life at the moment. There's huge um, demand for it. And uh, I, I really strongly feel like that's a really important way forward for New Zealand, to, even if we don't all learn to be bilingual, just to have an appreciation of the language and utilise it more in our day-to-day lives and in promoting New Zealand.
2: Yeah, if you think the whole country could do with a crash course and like um, the land wars and uh, the New oh. Zealand wars, that'd be a good start. Like start with the history and then and then add the language.
3: There's a lady called Sarah Moore uh, who is writing a column at the moment about her journey to learn te rea. I think she has a, a Maori niece and she wants to sort of show, um, you know, simpatico or something. Anyway, she's on a journey and so she's writing about it. And the comments that she has had on the bottom of her column are just eye watering. One person actually wrote, "I will learn Māori when Māori learn how to speak English properly," uh, which—that's
1: why you just disable comments yeah, like just, that. As soon as you start to see that kind of thing happen, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty unpleasant. I do actually really like that that AT has made this a point of emphasis. I think for a long time when we have talked about the economy, we've just looked at the areas where it is currently productive and tried to imagine how we can kind of eke out a few percentage gains there and not the areas where it's really struggling, which has flow on kind of social consequences and not thought about what a world would look like if that was just even working at a baseline, if not beyond. And uh, and I think I, I was having a conversation with someone at ATD, um at the Writers' Festival a couple of months ago and who was talking about this sort of transformative work she was doing to – to to emphasize those areas of Auckland that do tend to to get ignored and uh you know if if they can pull this off you know that seems like an economic development organisation doing absolutely the work it should be doing and with that with the potential to to do something quite transformative and and that that's yeah. quite exciting
2: it'll probably be a shit show along the way because any great like um ambitious project whether it's the sydney opera house the city rail link or some kind of amazing, um, y- you know, a- indigenous cultural representation of Auckland is going to attract the knockers and the wreckers and there'll be budget overruns and people hate the designs and people love the designs. But there has to be some kind of, you know, um, big big scale thinking because it's kind of bananas if you think about it, how we don't have, you know, where, where is a um, fortified pa? Where, where's a pa display on one of our maunga? Where's anything to talk about kind of um, the traditional way of life in, in Auckland this it's, it's was just the, the idea of
1: stopping driving cars up um, among the foliage was was like you know a, a really controversial topic but i i don't know about you guys but i certainly feel like there is a a swing happening whereby they the the clamor of that that sort of what is effectively like a NIMBY contingent used to be so so loud that it almost quelled you before you even attempted anything of consequence whereas now i feel like there's a whole generation of the city who've sat and watched that and lived with it for too long and are just not putting up with it and there's a sort of a resistance to it that is leading to more ambitious things um being executed you know whether that is the crl or um you know the transformation of mission bay the you know the the scale of Kiwi Build or um, you know, the Statue on Bastion Point, like mm. people aren't afraid to put these things out there and forces that uh, will gather to push them forward, where, where you know, previously that you know, you'd just kind of almost given up before you started. And-
3: it, that came out quite strongly in the Innovation Challenge as well. That um, the idea that um, it, you know uh, our Māori culture is one of our most underutilised assets and that every business should be set up around the concept of kaitiakitanga, kaitiaki excuse me, um, and that we should you know, be using that as a core platform of New Zealand Inc and um, using it as a unique selling point. And you put that out there and people, you know, once they would have rolled their eyes. But now, like as Araha Armstrong commented in her piece, people used to roll their eyes about... Um, Doing away with single-use plastic bags mm-hmm. as well, so there has been a real ground shift. Yeah, um, and, yeah.
2: And that that long-term approach to investing and to, um, to to ownership means that you know the iwi uh, business interests here are just going to keep becoming a larger slice of the local economy because all other money is entirely amoral and just goes anywhere. But the capital in the iwi organisations is just going to keep taking a larger slice of the country. So it's um yeah it's a it's a cool story and I think you know not to be too Auckland centric, but the um the really exciting thing about the the, the statue of the projects is that nati fatwa or ōraki have really shown through um, innovative housing projects and innovative kind of financial products and all kinds of cool approaches uh what they can do um yeah it'll be really interesting to see what roles what rolls out of there um another thing coming to auckland uh, is this um saAS conference which uh yeah it's such a such a big um topic in in business and New Zealand really does punch above its weight
3: I can tell you there is people in the, in the Callaghan Innovation Office who are wildly excited yeah, about yes. this. <laughs> it's <that's> a palooza <laughs> Getting sassy with it. Uh, yes, New Zealand is about to hold its first ever software-as-a-service conference, uh, which you know you might think is surprising, but uh, but we, we do have a, a rapidly growing SaaS sector, and for a couple of years they've been going up to the US to um, Sastra, which is the massive big industry event they have up there. And now they've decided to hold a local event and it's sold out within a, a matter of about a week which shows you the demand there is um, for these companies who want to kind of get together and share ideas and hear the good with the bad and Janine Crossan's going to be speaking, you know, following her sort of trailblazing admissions of how hard it was for her at times along her journey of building Flossie. And the thing is New Zealand's actually quite a good place to build a SaaS business um, and not least because it's uh, much easier to recruit and retain good development staff here. Up in Silicon Valley, you're competing with all the big guns. And the turnover there apparently is between people last between 13 and 18 months. And there's a saying, don't let your developers go out for lunch or they'll come back with a new job. And, you know, a little Kiwi firm can't compete with that kind of thing because, you know, the salaries and the headhunters charge 25 percent. And, you know, it's it's vicious. So, yeah, our developers tend to be skilled and stick around, which is a big advantage to them. Um, And while we we might not be doing the really high-tech stuff here, um, we can solve a business problem as as good as anyone. And a lot of our uh, SaaS companies are B2B, and they're doing some pretty cool things. Like there's one called um, EasyVet uh, just over here in Kingsland uh, who um, no one's ever heard of. They've got 100 staff, They're, they've got clients in six continents, um, including Cornell University, the I- Ivy League uh, college, and it's it's a cloud platform practice management system for vets. And there are multi-million dollar vet practices around the world that are, are using the system that's been designed by a little Kiwi company. So there you go.
2: Ah, that's cool. I'll be going. <laughs> <laughs> Love me some sass, I do. Yeah, I'll be there. Um, hey, one other thing just before we um, we head out this week is a story you've been following for years, Duncan. Um, the Sky Sports story, they're a really interesting parable because for, for 20 years, you know, they, they were like um, investing ahead of the market. They were visionaries. They knew where it was going. They were they were pioneers. They were making their money out of, you know, um, pornography even. They're quite an unusual company. And now they're, 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 they're falling back behind... Um, the way the world's going towards the internet is um, Spark comes in and takes some little bits of rights. Is it is it a big story?
1: I think so. I mean, I, I think from you know Sky is one of the most extraordinary businesses in, in New Zealand history. You know, it, it's a technology startup effectively that that uh, just it wasn't necessarily an internet startup, but it it managed to put this piece of technology in hundreds of thousands of New Zealand homes, convince us to pay a subscription fee and um and just captured huge chunks of the content that, that people want, want to watch and under exclusive rights deals and for at least probably 20 straight years it it was almost perfectly run you'd have to say and then it faced this challenge of the internet and challenge with with netflix um and the netflix type model where which was a, a far cheaper product it was similar but it certainly didn't have anything like the quality of content that sky had either um, when you look at the, the sort of HBO rights deal um, but particularly when it comes to sports um, and so they you know faced this kind of difficult choice of do you sort of cannibalize yourself um, and and uh, sort of put put out new new internet products which were cheaper and then you know potentially have have major losses of, of customers or transfer of customers that way or do you sort of bluff it out and i think um what sky did for a number of years was this sort of broken version of both i created internet products that they didn't market particularly well where the tech was a lot of the time pretty awful and, and still is you know sky go is still a broken experience um speaking of someone who's been trying to watch Succession on it these past few weeks.
2: SkyGo makes you think that no one at Sky is on Twitter because all you have to do <laughs> is search Sky Go and know that that's what you've got to fix.
1: And yet, uh, the content library that they have, the the sports rights that they have locked away and that they have relationships with uh, are peerless, almost in a world scale in terms of how much they've monopolised the local market. And that technology piece, which at the time they first started working in it, was a sort of an open question. How do you design it? What's the UX? What are the platforms? How do people want it? How do you sell what's the cost for it? That's now essentially solved. Um and they've got a, a major new sort of suite of platforms and pricing coming in sort of March, April next year. And I in some ways it it shapes as their last hope to get the internet and to sort of traverse from being this enormous sort of company that right now looks like it's a sunset one to to being something that actually could, I think, quite quickly dominate again if it it figures out how to do that. And it shouldn't be as hard as they've made it look. But at the same time as that's happening, Spark has just gone and bought the Rugby World Cup rights um, for men's and women's and sevens. Uh, It's bought the EPL. There are rumours about it buying F1. And, you know, they are looking at that as... They don't have to make it as profitable as, as Sky's made it. They really want to just sell more broadband and, and mobile yeah. phone subscriptions. Uh, so, that new sort of um, frontier in, in the media battle is, you know, as much as we talk a lot about the NZME stuff merger and, um, you know, and the Vodafone Sky merger, this new sort of Spark Sky uh, sort of face off, I think, is becoming one of the most fascinating media, uh, just media battles in New Zealand.
3: Yeah, from just from the personal perspective of my own household, I'll be very interested to uh, see what their product is when it comes out because uh, my husband's a massive cycling fan and he wants to watch the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia. The only place you can do that at the moment is Sky, which is pretty much the only reason we have Sky. And it annoys the hell out of me that I have to pay an annual subscription to get uh, those few events in the European summer. So if you could get a sort of a snackable um, a la carte kind of way of watching it, that would be great. And
1: that's what, so I went to a a sort of an investor briefing in March, April, where they basically as good as said that you will be able to have whatever sky you want. You know, I think there'll be sort of baseline packages and bolt-ons, but for the that sort of vast array of uh, sort of relatively niche sports. I'm also a cycling fan. Um, but still, you know, it's it's still a niche event. I think you will just be able to sort of add them for a far lower investment and they're, they're banking on being able to bring on, because their customer has aged radically, and if they can just bring on some younger people and keep that sort of old farming mm-hmm. couple who want the box in the corner, like my uh, grandparents-in-law and my grandparents for that matter, then... Uh, yeah, they might well be able to apex this difficult term.
2: Yeah, and you you never want to bet against you know, um, people love disruption, people love stories of change. But, you know, the the most uh the safest bet in the world is the idea that things will mainly continue reasonably similar to they are. And a great example of that is um Spark, where for many years their absolute um earnings engine were all the people still on copper lines paying for low quality internet that they had great margin on and they just didn't change. And so, pretty much anyone you can think of who had like a Jim and Mary at extra.co.nz address, those people kept Spark going as they um, were then able to uh, bring in all their innovative new products and change up their business model, which they have done, you, you know, like a, a quite phenomenal um, job of. If you look at Spark in the market now versus Telecom five years ago, um, you know, t- totally amazing. And there, there is, when you have something like Sky that has, um, had 50% plus household penetration for its product I mean that is unparalleled in the world and all they have to do is hold on to um, hold on to a good chunk of that to keep the cash coming in and start start executing better
1: and and that's the thing that I think gets missed is that when you have a, a huge sort of chunk of legacy customers who are happily paying hundred bucks a month for a product, that, that gives you a license to make mistakes over and over and again, which don't necessarily mean that you'll never get it right. Mm. And when you do, you know you're you're in a far better position. Like with startups, if if you get it wrong two or three times, you're toast. You know, um, but for Sky, they you know I, I went through and read you know most of their annual reports over the last twenty years and in, in the course of a feature I wrote recently, and the number of internet products they've launched. Over the years, which turned out to be dismal failures, is, is quite phenomenal. The shadow history of all of their tech launches, but they only have to get it right once and and transfer because they've still got over seven hundred thousand paying subscribers. And,
2: and people talk, oh, you're a failure, <laughs> you know, And that seven hundred thousand subscribers that was built on, you know, um, in 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 a time now where SaaS companies, you know, it's a very well established thing that you go for growth and market share and you plot out your um, the arc of your graph and you say, we're going to lose money for this many years and it's going to work. I remember when Sky was still losing money and there were all the knockers saying it was crazy and it was never going to work. And then suddenly they became this incredible cash um, generating monopoly and they were heroes. And you know, yeah, I I just wouldn't bet against people that have a track record of actually, um, of actually creating their own monopoly.
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
2: yeah. Although I wouldn't have much... Things in recent history to uh, give much um, positivity for bidding for them either
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's true but, but John, John, John Follett who is the one guy who did an extraordinary job with the um, with prior platforms and is now you know and arguably is the one who sort of has missed on the internet is, is on his way out the door and so there is an opportunity for a new CEO who maybe is a specialist in that kind of area to, to come in and get that one thing right and
2: what they, I mean, they did have all the rights, but you know, you could still turn the Sky on and go through 120 channels and there'd be nothing to watch because of the lack of an on demand, mm. uh, easy to use feature. And so maybe that's the magic
3: ingredient oh, I've discovered got on some real things. gems by doing that so <laughs> um, did you ever get into celebrity rehab was, <laughs> I got I got really into that program <laughs> yeah, that's awesome well
2: thank you so much for joining us uh, Maria Slade from uh, Callahan Innovation Senior Copywriter there and Duncan Greave Managing Editor at the Spinoff and thank you to Alice Wood for producing and thank you very much for having us
3: thank you
1: You've been listening to Business Is Boring. Presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the Spinoff and Callahan Innovation.
0: From the Spinoff Podcast Network, that was Business Is Boring. Brought to you by Spark Lab. Make sure you're following Business Is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab. Visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt/cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The spin-off podcast network.